Hi, and welcome to The Game Pit. We are back to some semblance of normality with a Picking Over the Bones episode. Hi, it's Ronan here. We are going to be talking over four games which we've played in recent weeks, give you our thoughts. The two games I'm going to be talking about this week are Robinson Crusoe, Adventure on the Cursed Island, and Francis Drake. And Sean, what are you going to be talking about? I'm going to be talking about two games that definitely have their similarities. That's London and Bruges. You can catch all our episodes at 2d6.org and you can find us and lots of other great podcasts at thedicetowernetwork.com. First up for me is a game called Bruges, which is a 2013 release from Z-Man Games. It's designed by Stefan Feld, who needs no introduction, but I'm going to reel off some of his uh, more famous games. It's Notre Dame, Macau, Luna, the Castles of Burgundy, and an Essen release this year, which was Amerigo. It plays two to four players in a playing time of roughly 60 minutes. And this is a card-driven, economic, city-building game with a little bit of dice rolling. So, in Bruges, players are merchants in 15th century Bruges. Not only are you competing against each other, but you will need to prepare for events that can scupper your hard work. So, how do you play this game? Each round consists of four phases. Now, these phases are phase one. This is where you draw your cards. These cards will be used during phase three. Players will draw from two available piles with only the colour of the card on show. Each player will draw up to a hand limit of five cards before everybody moves to phase two. Phase two. The start player will now roll the five dice that come in five different colours. These colours correspond with the groups of worker meeples available to players, the card colours and the threat tokens that all players are given under the following circumstances. If a dice roll is five or six each player will get one threat token of the same colour. Should players ever miss three of the same colour token, something bad will happen. For example, one token represents a flood and all of your workers must be returned to the supply. Or another token represents a raid and players with three of these will need to hand back all of their money. Definitely something you'll want to avoid. The next step of phase two involves a reputation track which is on the board. And to move up on this track, players must pay the combined total of all the dice that show a 1 or a 2 result. But you may only move up one place on the track. So, on to phase 3. Phase 3 is the meat of the game, and most of the gameplay takes place in this phase. Each action in this round will cost you a card, and players will take turns to play one action until four cards have been played by each player leaving one card in hand unless you have a power that states otherwise. So before I list the available actions, let me quickly run through the cards which do form the mainstay of the game. The card back is a building in one of the same five colours as the dice, as I mentioned before. And these buildings can be used to house one of the people who are on the other side of the card. The people on the front side of the card are used for instant, ongoing and final score bonuses and have a cost to put into play. On each card face is the cost, any immediate victory points, an activation icon that shows when they can be used, the name and benefit that they give, and the group out of the 11 in-game that that person belongs to. 
This is used for bonus scoring provided by the actions on some cards. So, as I said before, the actions available in this round are Take two workers. This is done by discarding one of your cards and taking the workers of the same colour. Take money by, again, discarding a card and taking the amount of money shown on the dice of the same colour as the card you've just discarded. You can simply discard one threat token that you've amassed by discarding, again, a card of the same colour. You also earn one victory point by doing this. You can build a canal token. Now, I haven't really spoken about canals yet. Each player has two very simple canal routes consisting of five spaces that they can build on the board. To build, you must, once again, discard a card of the same color as the next available canal space and pay the cost. And the canal spaces start at one and end with five. At the end of the game, player earns three points by simply reaching stage three of a canal. But should they complete the canal, they will get to pick up the next available statue tile. Now, the statue tiles are placed on the board, and the first to complete a canal will earn the seven-point tile. The next will earn six, and so on, until the last one, which is worth two points. The next action you can do is to build a house. You pay a worker of the color of the house you want to build, and this house can now have an occupant on it, i.e. one of the player faces all the cards this also earns the player one point regardless of whether it has an occupant and lastly recruit a person by placing it on top of the house the colors do not have to match and you have to pay the cost in the top left hand corner to recruit the person during this phase the players may activate any of their housed people's powers which can range from gathering more resource to protecting against threats or scoring bonus points and so on. Now on to phase four, which is the last of the phases. This is where you determine majorities. Now to do this, each player begins with three tokens turned to a grey side of the token, and these tokens represent the majorities in one of the following. Reputation, based on your position on the reputation track. People, who has the most people recruited into their cities? Not workers, but rather the character cards in the houses on your display. And canal, this is simply who has built the most canal sections. If you have the sole majority in any of these three areas, you turn the corresponding token over and it stays like that and earns you four points at the end of the game. Then you change the starting player and it's off to phase one again. If the available deck should run out on anyone's turn, the reserve deck is used, but this will be the last round of the game. End of game scoring, points are awarded for houses in your city, straight up points on person cards, bonus points from the card text, canals if you've built up to section three, and from obviously the statue tokens if you've finished the canals, and you get points equal to your place on the reputation track and Lastly, the majority tokens are taken into account. And as with most games, the player with the most points is the one that wins. There you go, Ronan. So it's from Stefan Feld, obviously, and coming from such a famous designer, it's going to be judged amongst his other games that he's brought out. This, for me, is very much walking proudly down the middle of the Feld Road in inoffensive happiness. You score some victory points for doing some things... Whatever they might be, there's a few problems or threats that you have to manage and mitigate against. 
there's some small economics in there with it. It brings together a few different elements. Now, he does this with lots of his games. They tend generally to be heavier than this and longer than this. He's condensed them, he's made them as inoffensive as possible, and he's made a nice little Euro. Yeah, this is definitely on the lighter end of the failed range. The three words I'd use to sum up this game are quick, effective, fun. And I think, for me, that sums the game up. I think there's lots of little elements that aren't in themselves very meaty at all, but I think they all combine to give you a very, very small headache when you're trying to decide what path to go. Do you protect yourself against these threats that come up? Do you go for just building loads of houses to get more personalities in there? Do you build up your money? There's a few routes to go down, but none of them will really give you a massive headache when you're trying to think out your next move. Well, the reason with that is because you can't think beyond one round. You're going to be resetting your hand every single turn. You can only keep that one card over. So there's no point really thinking beyond one round. You can in a vague sort of a way. You can think, okay, I'm going to go for canals and therefore I'll take a yellow card that comes up if that's the next one I need or what have you. But really, you're just looking at the cards you've got in your hand and use them as efficiently as you can for your four actions this turn then see what the game of gods give you for your next round there's no real strategic overview i know you can try and put combos of different types of characters together and they come in certain colors but it's not easy to do it's more sort of something to consider rather than a real plan that you want to make for yourself it's a very reactive game and you can set up a general strategy as in I'm going to go heavily for canals and I want to really get the majorities or you want to just go for houses in certain colours. As Ronan said, you can change some colours, but you're going to be need to be lucky as well because sometimes your cards that you need just won't come out. So you've got to be able to react to the cards that you do get definitely. it certainly it rewards you it kind of drives you to be flexible doesn't it these four different victory points that are available in the three different areas it's actually one of the more interesting things i think where you're judging when to push for it and when not to yeah if i get the lead in canals if i keep that lead for the rest of the game then no one else is going to get those four points but I'm not actually scoring a lot of points by continually building up all these canals. It tends to be those first few that you do in any area is going to get you the most of your points. So if I've got the most characters, is it then the best thing for me to do to continue playing out character after character after character when really, with only four actions, with a lot of them needing a, a meeple to play or what have you, I'm not really gonna, generally going to be able to use them all each turn. So... I'm just playing characters to stop someone else scoring or anyone else scoring their four points bonus. Is it worth it? That scoring, the spread of scoring, kind of makes you want to diversify each of your tactics. Yeah, and also I think the amount of cards and the fact that you don't actually play with the whole deck. There, there is a reserve section of the deck that's just used to finish that last round. You never really judge what you what's going to come into your hand and on one hand that's going to give you loads of replayability because you're you're never going to see really the same hand twice until you've played this sort of umpteen times on the flip side of that as we've already said you're never really going to be able to prepare and get to the point where this game is a strategy game you're always going to be reacting to it that wide variety of characters it's kind of a barrier to entry as well when you first play it with someone when you first play it yourself you look at them and you just go 
well, they're all different. I don't know how at all I'm ever going to string these together. And because I guess a lot of Eurogamers are used to being able to string huge combinations together, those combinations kind of either happen to you or, or, or they don't. It's very hard to say you're going to try and string this together to cause that, to cause that, to cause that. There is a barrier to entry there, and it does make it hard to know what to come up with. If I go early with, I don't know, noble characters, for example, and I'm trying to put up a bonus of them, and then I just don't get any more for the rest of the game. Or when they do come, that's the only colour that's got a high number on the dice, therefore I have to hand them in to get money in order to play a character, but that's the character I wanted to play, I've had to hand in for the money. You get the idea, it's that if that's the way it comes up, that's the way it comes up. Just roll with it, don't get too stuck in your ways. One thing we haven't really touched on is the look of this game. Now, for me, this game, before I played it, it just looked like such a Euro-y, Euro-y type game. It, was, it just melds into that sea of very similar Euro boards and mechanics and even the artwork. But it doesn't actually feel that much like a Euro game when you're actually playing it because it is so reactive. And you can't chain these things together and you can't get good at it well you can probably get better at it, but i don't think you're ever going to become a master of this game because it just changes up so often no i'm shaking my head this is the most euro of euros that ever euroed <laughs> everything's just completely abstract i don't really feel like i'm building canals i don't really feel like i'm building houses i don't really feel like i'm using characters the threats they don't really feel like what they're supposed to be do i feel like this plague of rats has really come along and eaten the face of one of my characters not really or if there's a fire because i've built one piece of canal that means my house is saved Uh, thematically it doesn't make any sense it looks like a lot of other euros it is pretty much completely abstract no this is a completely euro euro no i completely disagree i think yeah, you're, you're saying that it looks and the, the theme-wise doesn't really make that much sense and it's quite abstract to the actual game, but the actual gameplay, you can usually plan out a Euro game. You can usually use one of a few tactics that you can apply to most Euro games, but this one is so reactive, I don't think you can ever do that. It gives that random element that doesn't always sit well in Euro games. Uh, no, I think it's just a tactical Euro rather than a strategic one. I think sometimes we think Euro means three hours long, but it doesn't necessarily. To me, it means something that's got simple mechanics, which is what this has, an abstract theme, which is what this has, scoring virtue points around the outside. It, it's, it doesn't do anything new. That's not to say it's a bad game, but I don't think it particularly innovates. And you've seen these all before in games, all of these bits of a game. Oh, definitely. I don't think it's innovative at all. I like the fact that it's just, I'm always sort of having to think. I can't really rest on my laurels. And I'm always having to just make sure that the next hand, and study that next hand. So there's always that interest for me. I think there's a good balance between watching what other people are doing and constantly having to make sure you know what you're going to do next. I think I like the fact that it's a quick game. I'm becoming a bit of a fan of this. Well, for sure, look. As far as I'm concerned, if you play this quickly and everyone plays it quickly and it's a 45-minute game, you're not going to get much of a better 45-minute Euro, to be honest. It ticks every single box. It does everything completely competently. You're going to have a little workout of your brain. You're not going to get a headache from it, but you're also not going to sit there and think that the game played you. What you do has an effect. Like you say, you do have to keep an eye on what everyone else is doing. You are looking for opportunities to strike. You do have to manage that hand of cards every time it comes round. 
you ha- don't have very much control on your hand of cards. You do to a little degree, but not much really. But you still have to manage what you get and play well to win. It's, it's not a game you win by random. I don't want to make it sound like that. It is a game that requires a bit of brain power, but there's not that much to it. So just play it quickly and really enjoy it for what it was, a competent Euro in under an hour. For me, I'll reiterate, quick, effective, fun. It's a euro light game. Play it quickly and you'll get loads of enjoyment out of it. So the first game I want to talk about today is the 2012 release Robinson Crusoe Adventure on the Cursed Island. This was designed by Ignacy Trevesek and came from Portal Games. Now, Ignacy is famous for designing such games as Stronghold and 51st State, and he's very much linked into Portal Games, which is his company, and they've released, well, recently, the likes of Theseus and Legacy, and, well, Robinson Crusoe itself has been one of their big releases. It's a co-op game and it's based loosely on the book of Robinson Crusoe and there are different scenarios available within the game and certainly the first one is based very much on Robinson Crusoe but as you go on and play the other scenarios that are available it moves away from that source material but that's the basis that's used to teach you that game and that introductory scenario. Now there are an absolute ton of components in this game. I will go through some of them quickly but I certainly won't be able to go through all of them. You've got a rather strange looking board which is pretty big when you first see it and I certainly when I'm teaching it when I got it out people have taken, been taken aback by it. Lots of different areas on it for all these different components I'm about to talk about. You've got tiles which are going to go out which make up the island on which you're playing. You have got numerous decks of cards that represent different risks you take when you're going to be able to go gathering goods and trying to build things and go exploring. You've got a deck of cards which represent animals. You've got two different event decks which are going to be put together, which are going to sort of guide in some way the story of the game you play. You've got a deck of cards for adventures you can encounter and different goods and traps you can come across during your encounters. There are a deck of invention cards which you're going to be able to invent. There's some starting items you can get. There are also another deck of cards. There are wooden playing pieces. Now some of these are are flattened cylinders which are going to represent your action pawns during the game because there is an action selection phase coming up in my description. There are wooden cubes which are going to represent resources. There are plastic cubes which are going to represent different features. There are counters aplenty. They represent the weather. They represent where your camp is. They represent when you've got to go on adventures when you do something. They represent wounds on your character. They represent bonuses you can get. They can represent hundreds of different things depending upon how this game plays. There are also a few dice that come with the game. Now the dice represent various weather that are going to occur and also they're going to resolve what happens to you when you attempt to do different things during the game. And like I say, some of them are set and some of them are scenario dependent. It's very much a game system in a box which comes with lots and lots of components and some of them have got multiple uses. Now in the seven different scenarios, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use that first one which is called Castaways and that's how I'm going to explain the game because that's going to be the first way you encounter the game and that's going to give me some basis because if I try and explain every way of playing this game then we're just going to be here for hours. During each turn of the game there are going to be six phases and now the players are going to be playing this all together and you're going to be encountering different difficult scenarios and let's get this straight off, this is not an easy game in any way, shape or form. 
And this is how you're going to roll through this. Now, the first phase of every turn is the event phase. This is where you turn over an event card and something's going to happen. You're going to read off whatever this is that's going to have occurred and it's going to have some effect on the gameplay. And now why I sound vague here is because you're talking about a deck of dozens and dozens of cards and there's only going to be up to maybe a dozen come in every play that you play. So for me to attempt to explain everything is going to be impossible again. Also, it's going to give you a future threat on that event card. So it's going to tell you what's happened now and also what might happen to you if you don't deal with the problem that's arisen. And that's another theme that's going to come throughout this game is that the game tells you what's going to happen so that you have a little bit of a chance to plan for what's ahead. During the course of the game though, into that event deck are going to come cards out of the uh, adventure decks. Uh, some of this is going to sound a bit confusing, but later on in the action phase, when I tell you you're going to try and build something or you're going to try gathering resources and maybe get an adventure, I'll explain these cards. And when I say they come back into the event deck and they can happen later, well this is when I mean it, during this first phase of each turn, the event phase. The second phase is real quick, it's called a morale phase. There's a morale track on the board and for each turn there's going to be a start player and whether your morale is high or low, that start player is either going to get a bonus or they're going to lose some things called determination tokens. Next phase is the production phase. Again, this is very quick. You're going to have a small counter which is going to represent your camp in the game and where your camp is, you're going to produce some goods wherever you are. There are these tiles which make up the island. They represent different terrains and they're going to give you different resources wood or food usually and where you are in your camp you're just going to produce some wood or food. The next phase is the action phase. Now this really is the meat of the game. Each player is going to have two action pawns available to them and during this phase at the beginning you're all going to have a conversation between you as a team and you're going to decide where every player is going to go. For these actions generally you can either go for a guaranteed result which usually means doubling up going somewhere or you can go for the risky approach and you can put one action pawn in an area, which means you might do what you'll set out to do, but something completely different might happen. And again, I'll go through this. So some of the different actions you can take. There's a threat action. Now, when I talked about that event deck earlier, I said that's going to tell you some threat that may happen to you in the future. Well, what you can do during this action phase is go and deal with that threat. You can see something bad that might happen, so you go and you deal with it now. And generally, you might get a little bit of reward for doing that, but it's more staving off future disaster. You can go hunting in the game. Now, first of all, you have to have gone exploring and discovered some of the animals in your area. But once you discover them, if you've managed to create some weapons for yourselves, you can go off hunting and get some food and some furs, possibly to build up a, a camp for yourself. You can go building. Building covers a wide range of things. You start off with your camp, but you don't have any shelter. Now, shelter is a very important part of certainly the first scenario. You need to build a roof and some walls for yourself because as you're on the island, it's going to turn into autumn and turn into winter and the weather is going to start coming into effect. I'll talk about it more when I describe the weather phase in a moment, but just be aware that one of the things you can do is build up your, your shelter in your camp and your palisade and your walls and your roof. You can also build yourself some weapons. Also, a real big part of the game is... I mentioned there are invention cards. Now, these are going to be different in every game, but these inventions are going to be available to the group. But before you use them, you're going to have to discover them and you're going to have to build them. So this is where you get to do that. You can assign your action pawn to building. Other things you can do, you can go out gathering resources. Now, I said where your camp is, you're going to get some food or some wood depending upon where you are, and you can move that camp during the game. But from the uh, tiles around where your camp is, you can go out and gather some more food and some more wood. You can also go exploring. You start off only knowing a small part of the island in this first scenario and you're going to have to spread out away from your camp 
explore different areas because different areas well they're going to give you access to different resources they're going to give you access to different animals you can go hunting also certain inventions can only be built if you've discovered certain different types of landscapes as represented by those tiles that show the island so unless you've discovered those tiles you can't make those inventions and they're always going to make life easier for you so it's always worthwhile having an explore you can do something called arranging the camp or putting up the wallpaper as we like to call it and when you go there you're basically going to cheer everyone up and either get some tokens for yourself determination tokens to make life easier or increase the morale of everyone or you can even rest everyone's going to choose a character at the beginning of the game and there are four different characters available and they've got different types of skills and the different skills are used using these determination tokens i've mentioned once or twice but also they've all got different levels of wounds and as bad things happen to you you can become wounded if by resting you can heal up a wound there are other ways as well through certain inventions or if you've got a cook you can cook some food and heal some people if any character takes enough wounds to die then the whole group has lost the game so that's something you definitely need to be aware of and the option there of resting i said that when you do these actions you can guarantee doing them by sending two action pawns off so if you send two action pawns to go let's say inventing something you're guaranteed to invent it that's fine if you only send one you may invent it or you may not for each off the three different things you can send only one person to that's uh, building gathering resources and exploration there are a set of three die if you've only sent one person to do it you've got to roll those three die and different things can happen to you you can either be successful or you can fail but if you fail you do get two determination tokens so that kind of softens the blow somewhat the second thing that can happen is you may encounter an adventure so you draw a card from the adventure deck and that's going to tell you what's happened to you i can't even begin to explain all the different things on these cards but something may happen at the time you may get a little bite on your hand for example or perhaps you notice that the wind's picked up now, quite often these cards are going to get put into the event deck and get shuffled. And then right at the beginning of that turn, that events phase, if one of these adventure cards gets pulled out, whatever was going to happen that you got a bit of a heads up for is now going to happen. So, for example, if I said you got a little bite on your hand on this card, what would happen is you'd probably put a little marker on your character sheet to say, look, I've got a bite on my hand. When that card comes up, it's going to say something along the lines of, you got bitten by a poisonous spider, you lose three wounds, you can't take any actions this turn. It might say, if you've got the cure, you're okay. Now, is an invention you can make. It's one of those things you can send people out to, to create for you. So there's one of the ways in which inventions can help. If I get bitten on the hand, I can read ahead and say, look, we need to have a cure by the time this comes up. Otherwise, I'm going to miss a whole turn. And they're not that specific, the inventions. The cure is going to help you in other scenarios as well. But just to give you kind of a feel, or maybe you can see there's a storm coming up and you're going to have to have a level two roof. Otherwise, you're all going to take damage. So you know, right, we need to concentrate on building up our roof here, guys, because that's kind of come up sooner rather than later. And we need to be protected. It's one of those ways which means that there are lots of events which can happen to you, but usually you've got a little bit of knowledge, a little bit, uh, at least we had a chance to do that. We could have prioritized doesn't mean we necessarily can because it's a tough game it's a tight game but the ability is there to do so the third dice that you get to roll that's simply going to tell you maybe you're a bit clumsy and you got wounded doing what you did so there's a chance you're just going to take a wound or two the fifth phase of each turn is the weather phase that depends upon how far you are along in a scenario so we'll take the first one for example in the first three turns of don't have any weather at all so it's not something you have to worry about from turn four to six you have to roll the orange dice which has a lot of rain there i like to call it the autumn dice now that's going to tell you whether there's been any rain if you've got roof the clouds are not a problem if you haven't you're going to get rained on it's going to cost people food or wood or it's going to cause them some wounds 
as you get later on for the whole second half of this castaway scenario from turn 7 to 12 you're going to have rainy weather you might also have snowy weather and there's also a chance of getting attacked by beasts because i guess they've worked out where they are on the island they're going to come sniffing around that really is a problem you're going to have to have a good robust shelter to deal with this all the time otherwise you're constantly going to be paying wood over to try and keep yourself warm during the night why do i say during the night because the next the last phase of each turn is the night phase. At the night phase, everyone has to eat within your group. You also get a chance to move your camp somewhere adjacent to where it is already so you can explore further and further into the island. You're also at that stage, you're going to have to throw away any excess food you have because this island's in the tropics, so you can't store things up in this game very easily. You have to deal round by round, make sure you have enough food coming in to feed your people. Now, you can ask me, what's the point? What am I trying to do in this game? Well, in the first scenario, in the castaway scenario, you're trying to build a signal fire. So you're trying to gather lots of food and add them to this wood pile. And then from turns 10 to 12, there's a ship going past the island. And if you manage to light your fire, you signal to that ship and they come and rescue you. That's the very basic way that you play Robinson Crusoe Adventure of the Cursed Island. Sean, do you want to jump in with any thoughts at this stage? That's just taken you quite some while to explain a very, very basic overview of this game. This game is deep. It is like playing a story at times. You feel like you are a character in a story, and not a lot of games actually manage to do that. But we'll come back to that. I think the place I'd like to start on is the initial impressions of that board. Now, Ronan, you did mention that it does take some people aback. It took me aback in terms that I was expecting something a lot more lavish. And it does start off quite beige, but once you put those cards on and you start building up the tokens and the areas become apparent, it does start to grow almost like a story building itself to start. There's so much on that board. It's so busy. I've gone really, really quickly over those rules. And I gather you're, maybe your head is spinning. And I certainly didn't mean to teach you how to play the game there. I was just trying to, in a manageable amount of time, give you an overview of some idea of what happened. There's so much information going on. That board has to be, in and of itself, quite plain. Because before long, you're going to have tokens on there. You're going to have cubes on there. You're going to have tiles coming out. You're going to have lots and lots of cards flying about. And for it to make any sense at all, when you look at it, to be able to take in all the information that you need and really prioritize your actions as a group, you just have to have no superfluous information on there. I really like the board. I when I go through those six phases, you can actually follow those phases around the board. You can see exactly where they go. Again, like I say, when you first see it, it looks busy, it doesn't look pretty, but once you start playing the game, you're really thankful for the good design on that board. Absolutely, it's completely functional, and it does actually become pretty once the cards, and you start building it up, and once the story starts, and you start getting into this arc where you're trying to survive, and the weather's hitting you, beasts are hitting you, and the board actually does become, as well as functional, very pretty, I think, and very thematic. You see, I had difficulty there explaining the six phases separately because they all kind of interact with each other. There's all bits in two that can affect four and five is what makes you do three. And for the way that it's such a complex mechanical game, the theme is amazing. When you play this game, people are not saying that brown cube or that yellow cube or I'm going to put myself on the green cards or whatever. They are saying we don't have enough food. We're going to starve or 
we need more wood for the fire, or I'm going exploring. They use the terms in the game. I think I've said it before. When people use the terms within the game, it means that they're invested in the game. They've become part of the story of that game. I actually couldn't agree more. It's just so involving. And when you do go and do something like go hunting, you feel like you're crawling around in this jungle with a spear and you're, you're dreading what might come around and you're praying for something nice and easy to kill. You're thinking to yourself, mind you, if a tiger does happen or a bear does happen to leap out at me and I do manage to kill it, I'm going to come back to camp a hero. We're going to have food and warmth. You might end up hunting, I don't know, a lizard and get one bit of meat. Or like you say, maybe you'll hit a bear and have five bits of meat to bring back. And you're like, yeah, I've done this. You don't know. And everything is like that. You do not know what's going to happen. You do have to work as a team. You do have to have a strategy. But you have to roll with the blows. You just have to take risks and go with it. Because there are so many cards in here. There is such a huge variety of gameplay. It is amazing. You will never, ever play the same game twice. And then, Sean, what did we find at Essen? Uh, We found an expansion to this game, which probably came... Well, let's talk about the box first. The box is amazing. It's like an old weathered tome. It's absolutely stunning. You'll struggle to find a more beautiful box for any game or expansion ever. And then inside, Ronan, what did we find? Oh, so the, the expansion is based on Charles Darwin's Voyage on the Beagle. It's called the Voyage of the Beagle. It started off as a, as a fan expansion, and they've made it an official one. Inside there is a bound book which has the five scenarios linked together in this it's like a campaign you can play and you're trying to be a darwin so you start off by trying to explore areas then you you're running some difficulties and then you're trying to follow your scientific explorations again and you score points for how well you do over the course of the five scenario campaign oh it just seems amazing i'm very excited to get to play that so huge variety in the box and if you want it and now an expansion which just looks absolutely gorgeous how about it always feels like you're genuinely fighting against this island and this island wants you to die? Well, yeah, you mentioned uh, rolling with the blows earlier and you really, really do take some knocks in this game. Some of those dice rolls can really cause some actual wincing amongst the players. Those, those times when you think you really desperately need to invent something and then you just three turns in a row, you have to roll and you can't do it. It's like one in six chance. No! Oh, mate, what about the weather? The weather dice. Oh, <sighs> my God. They, they can kill you. Can they make you actually cry? What makes me laugh is that you're in the tropics enough so that all your food spoils, but you're getting snowed on night after night after night, and it's killing you. Because, yeah, that snow causes you to spend wood, the wood you need for the fire pile in that first scenario. and you, oh, It can really be a killer. You need to get that shelter up early. That's my advice to all new teams. I am going to come in with a downer, though, Sean. I know that you haven't had to teach it yet, but I have, which means I have had the pleasure of dealing with this rule book. Now, anyone who's had a Portal game before, most of them are notorious for their rule books and not in a good way. And notorious is not a good thing to be. This is not the best rule book in the world. It is not that well laid out. It certainly does not give you the rules very clearly. I have had to go online onto BGG, ask some questions, read some questions that other people have made. Certain times make some leaps of faith that follow the internal logic of the game. Say, well, it happens here like that. So let's guess it happens there like that. 
Now, obviously, with all this huge number of cards, there's, there's certain little exceptions that are going to come up. But in this case, there are fundamentals of the game which are not laid out well in the rulebook and are not made clear, and it takes a play or two to really get it in your head. Yeah, this game is so complex. If the rulebook isn't absolutely nailed on point, you're always going to struggle, so... Yeah. No, myself and, and a friend of mine, we learned it at the same time, and we actually were playing it at an Eastbourne convention at the same time, and we were going over asking questions of each other. Now he's really good at explaining games, and we were still having to just clarify things with each other, and even on the fourth play, forgetting what something did because it's not very clear in the rule book, and just having to go over it again and try and find the right page. So, yeah, slightly fighting with the rule book. Sean, do you want to give us your final thoughts on Robinson Crusoe Adventure on the Cursed Island? Yeah, when you first brought this one back from Essen, I was dubious. I wasn't entirely sure. I heard all your sort of rule book head banging and screeching. And again, it put me off again. And finally, we got around to playing this. We usually have a rule, myself and Roland, where if one of us has a game, it has to be pretty darn special for the other one to actually buy it as well because we can always just swap them over and or bring them around, whatever. This is definitely one that I am looking to buy. It's a fantastic game. I love theme in the game, and I don't think I've ever come across anything quite as thematic as this. It's worth the labours in terms of searching through that rule book, going on Board Game Geek, finding these rules that are missing, and yeah, fantastic, thematic, story-driven game. Absolutely. The designer has just got a book coming out, I think, based on his blog. I think it's called Games That Tell Stories, something along those lines. This is genuinely a game that tells a story, and it tells a different story every time you play it. Even with the same scenario, it will tell the different story every time you play it. It is such a an experience. I'll say when I first played it, I walked away and I wasn't convinced. I was like, oh, I'm not sure about that. It's one of those games you walk away and you're thinking about it and you're thinking about it and then give it a week and you're gagging to play this game again because the experience is what you're there for. And then you go back and play it and the more you play it, the more you enjoy it. As a team, you have to work together. It's a co-op that really means co-op. Not, I'm going to go off and do this, you go off and do that, you go off and do that. Every turn you are reacting to what's happened, reacting to what the story's throwing at you, reacting to what you have and haven't invented, reacting upon the different priorities that come up. Now, as a team, there is no right answer. There is no correct way of playing this because you don't know. You don't know whether it's the right thing to take that risk. Is it going to come up? Is it the right thing to invent that thing? Or is that thing we haven't needed yet what we're going to need for the next three events that come up? Who knows? You have to just do your best guess, work together, show faith in each other, and you'll have a fantastic, fantastic time playing this. I absolutely love it. I wish it was more readily available. I know there's lots of people who really want to get their hands on it. When it does become more available, pick up a copy by all means. If you like co-ops, if you like thematic games, if you think you've got a bunch of gamers who are willing to take on a challenge together, go for it because I really think this is an exceptional game. Next up from me is London. It's a 2010 release from Tree Frog Games, designed by Martin Wallace. He of Age of Steam, Brass, A Few Acres of Snow, Runebound, Timmer's Trail, and so many more. 
It plays two to four in approximately 90 minutes. And like Bruges, it's an economic city building game. The main mechanics here being card drafting and hand management. How do you play London? You start with six cards, five poverty cubes and ten pounds in money. Now players will be attempting to build on the London map using their cards to gather resources and maximise victory points and, of course, stitch up their opponents. In each round, players follow this sequence. You pick up one card from the stack or the display. More later on this. Then they may choose from the following actions. 1. Play cards. Players play as many cards as they like, but must play at least one. They play them onto the table, forming new stacks or covering existing stacks. But to place, you must spend a card of the same colour at any cost printed on the card. Discarded cards will go in designated spaces on the board where they will be available for other players to pick up. So you must be very careful what cards you give up. 2. You can run your city. This means you activate some or all of the cards in your building display, made from your playing cards as described earlier. This will earn you the rewards printed on the bottom of your cards. These can be money, victory points, or help reducing your poverty, and so on. This brings me to poverty, and it plays a huge role in this game. Once you have run your city, you will need to calculate your poverty, and this is done by adding the number of stacks in your city display to the number of cards in your hand, and then subtracting the amount of boroughs you own, which are on the board, but I'll talk about them next. You will then gain, or possibly lose, this much poverty. Now, as I said, you, you can buy boroughs on the land, so your third option is to buy land. You pay the cost of one of the boroughs on the game board, and place one of your colour tokens on the board. This is yours for the rest of the game, and when you buy the land, you will earn the set victory points and gain the stated cards for that area. And lastly, you have a choice to simply just draw three cards if you're, if you're particularly low on cards. Then you must discard down to nine cards. A couple of other points. The top row of the discarded cards on the game board will be trashed once there is no space for the player to place their card. The cards in the game are marked A, B and C and are placed in a stack with A on top and C at the bottom. The cards will get progressively more powerful with B being generally better than A and of course C being generally the best and most rewarding. Within the C deck are cards that are called underground cards and these allow you to place two underground stations or markers. These will increase your victory points in the area placed by two points. As it's a Martin Wallace game, there is, of course, bank loans. And you can have a loan of 10 or £40, pounds, but you must pay back 15 or £60, pounds respectively, by the end of the game, or you'll lose victory points. The game finishes when the deck runs out. Players then follow the scoring process, which takes in the boroughs controlled, victory points stated on the city cards, any failed loan repayments. Your actual money is £3 for one victory point. And then the almighty poverty is added up and the person with the lowest discards all their poverty cubes and the other players subtract that amount that they've discarded from their totals. The remaining poverty is subtracted from their victory points following a table, so it's not actually one for one. The winner is the person with the most victory points left after that. Ronan, London. Well, Sean. I think you knew this was going to be a controversial choice for discussion on this podcast, didn't you? 
Yeah, go on, tell us the story. We live in an era of Kickstarter now, Sean. And there are lots of people around the place aggrieved that they have paid for games they haven't received. One of the most heinous forms of this crime is when people kickstart a game, then that game becomes available in shops or at conventions to people who didn't kickstart it before they've received their copy. Am I right? Ronan, I used to think you were a bit of a whinging baby over this, but as you well know, it's kind of happened to me, and unfortunately, it's the same company. Let me take you back to a time pre-kickstarter, my friend. London becomes available for pre-order. I pre-order it. That Essen, we go to Essen, and we see lots and lots of copies of London. Have we received our copy of London yet? No. Are we able to pick up our copy of London from Essen? No. Are other people who didn't pre-order it, and therefore didn't pay for the game to get printed, able to buy copies of London at Essen? Yes. At that stage, I felt like putting my foot through every single copy of London at Essen and had to be talked down from a blinding rage. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's all right. It's been three years. I'm, I'm slowly, slowly calming down. He's, he's not bitter. He's not bitter. That's I the still main feel thing. like putting my foot through every copy of London I ever see. It's outrageous. <laughs> It's just happened to me with a study in Emerald, and you know what? I was expecting it to be at Essen, so I can't really complain that it was at Essen, but the fact that it's taken a month after Essen, so a month where people who have bought a game that I have helped fund have been enjoying that game, playing away, and I've been sitting there waiting for delivery of the game that I helped fund. Yeah, it's, it's quite irritating and possibly not the best strategy from Tree Fog, but I think we have pointed out our issues with that now let's move on to the actual game ronan what are your thoughts okay here's an issue i have with it as well now this is i know a personal issue okay this was sold as the theme of rebuilding london after the great fire and we kind of had that thing of the two games coming out at the same time of 1666 the great fire of london whereby you're gonna play as the fire in effect and burn down london and this martin wallace meaty game was going to come along and we're going to be able to rebuild this great metropolis which you couldn't have got a better theme for me wow amazing fantastic i was so hyped up does it feel like i am rebuilding london when i play this game this is a funny one for me it's it really is a funny one i think the game itself and the design of the game which incidentally is in that sort of understated style that tree fogs always managed to do really highly polished but not sort of in your face so i really like the design of tree frog games it's in that style it's very much a pretty game to look at it feels based around london and from that perspective it's quite thematic because it's all about london and you've got the map in front of you all, all these cards you're going oh yeah cool cool there's london oh yeah there's st paul's they're oh, brilliant but yeah i get what you mean the actual story that they've tacked onto this just makes no sense at all just have it as a game about london are you really invested in what buildings you're using and the fact that you know you have to pay a card of that color in order to build a card of that color it's it's a complete disconnect. This is really an abstract puzzle, is what it is. It, it's a puzzle. You're, you're playing with card colours. You're using a couple of different currencies, and that you know you don't want to go for victory points too early because you won't have any money then to cope with things. You're trying to deal with those poverty issues, but it really is a puzzle. 
it's a maths puzzle. You're just building up this hand of cards, and you're building up this tableau in front of you, and you're constantly thinking about the mathematics of what you're doing. That's that's what's happening. You're not too affected, really, by what anyone else is doing around the table. Yeah, if someone else is taking lots of poverty on, then poverty becomes slightly less of an issue for you. I think it works best two-player in terms of the card play. That poverty is much more zero-sum then, and you have to be aware much more of what each other is doing. However, then, the other aspect of the game on the map, which is kind of a bit of a funny add-on anyway, but once you get to two-player, it doesn't work. Now, I know there's... You probably know this better than I do. There are variants on BGG which you can use which make the map kind of less influential and it's less easy to get rid of those poverty cubes because two-player, if you use the map well, you're not really going to have a lot of poverty, are you? It doesn't... That bit doesn't work as well as... But the card play two-player works well. Definitely, because you're taking... You haven't got sort of another three people around the board all playing cards, so it's easier to to actually pay attention to what the other person's playing so you can actually kind of watch their sort of engine growing and see where they're going. But I think with two-player... A little bit, it becomes follow my leader. We played a game where you took a loan early and I didn't, and it completely ruined the game for me in terms of a chance to win because you just bought up all the boroughs and I wasn't able to do that because I was building my economy up, whereas you just had it and all you had to do is pay it back at the end. But that's when you had got rid of all your poverty, so I got absolutely munched with poverty. So I think it. With two-player, it does become follow my leader. You watch what the other person's doing, and you almost have to mirror it and try and just do it a little bit better. And also, like I say, the map, because I got maybe two boroughs ahead of you, I was always two boroughs ahead of you. It's It doesn't really work. But again, there are variants available. I will say this, that every game feels kind of samey. I know there are lots of different cards, but they come out in a certain order. They don't do that many different things. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like you've had wide, varying experiences in games of this? No, but, and after talking about Bruges last and saying how much I loved the fact that you were always reacting and everything was a little bit different every turn, I think this game is supposed to be kind of the same. There's part of me that kind of likes it for that because... I know what's going to happen. I know what I'm building. I know what the other person's building because their tableau is in front of them. Yeah, I don't think you're going to get a massive amount of variety. People can either go down one or two or maybe three routes, but they're not going to be massively different from what you're trying to do, no matter what you're trying to do. So I agree, but I kind of like the fact that it does that, if that makes any sense. The last game we're going to talk about today, Francis Drake, you know, we're going to talk about that as well. There's not great variety in that game, but it's an appeal there. For me with this, what it means is that I don't want to play it every week. You know, it's like, yeah, I'll have a game of London, but, you know, I'm kind of done with it now for a little while. There, I do agree. Yeah, I think it's a game that you pull out once in a while. And when you do pull it out, you've kind of forgotten how the last game went. And so you're almost like discovering it anew again. And I think it's a very clever game and it, it does get the old brain cells ticking over and there's lots of little fiddly things that you can do and a lot to think about. So I guess to sum up for me, it's good for half a dozen plays. But once you've played it half a dozen times, you're not going to see anything new. Then leave it a while, get it out, play it again two or three times till you get to that stage where you go, oh yeah, okay, I, I kind of remember everything about this game. Stick it away in the cupboard, and maybe in 18 months' time, you're going to get that itch to, oh, fancy game of London again. My experience and expectations of the game definitely coloured it for me. It wasn't the game I hoped it would be, 
while it is a good game, if, the, if you can find a copy, certainly seek it out, play it and enjoy it because it is an enjoyable game. Not one that I really need to keep in my collection, but like if Sean pulls it out every now and then and fancies a couple of games in London, sure, why not? I like Martin Wallace's designs. I like the way he puts his games together. I think this one has a funny kind of theme running through it, but the storyline just isn't very thematic. But I agree with Ronan where you can't play this game all the time and you do get to a stage where you have to put it away for a little while. But it's definitely worth keeping it in your collection because it does bring something a little bit different to the table. So it's a good game, if not a great game for me. Last game we're going to cover this episode on the Game Pit is Francis Drake. It's another 2013 release. The designer is Peter Hawes. Now, he's best known previously for uh, War of the Roses, York versus Lancaster. He also designed Heads of State and a game that came out around the same time as Francis Drake. That's Triassic Terror. This one was released by KL Games, uh, Eagle Games co-printing, I think. And KL Games, the only other game they've had out is the aforementioned Triassic Terror by Peter Hawes. This is for three to five players. It's going to take around 120 minutes. It's themed around expeditions of privateering or generally being a nuisance in a ship, sailing out from Britain down to the Caribbean, hassling a few Spanish people and heading back home again to reap your rewards, much the way Francis Drake made himself famous. The game is split into three rounds or three different voyages and each of these voyages is split into two completely distinct halves. In the first half it's a progressive worker placement game and you're going to be outfitting a ship. Then in the second half of each round you're going to use that ship to sail around different targets and locations within the Caribbean area in order to uh, well raid things as pirates do, possibly some trading and, and get as much bounty and notoriety as possible before sailing back home again to start again. I'm going to go through the two distinct halves for you to give you some idea of how the game works. The first half, you've got 10 workers and what is supposed to be the, the port of Plymouth is available in a variety of placement areas, spaces you can put your workers basically, and they go in two rows. Now you start at one end where the ships are, which is one end of the docks, and you're going to work your way right to left along the bottom row. Then you go up and work left to right to the very end of that row and then you get the outbound docks. When you finish placing there, that's when you put your ship in, in order to sail out. So starting with the first player, they choose any space available around this whole worker placement area. There are in fact around 18 different areas. So if they wanted to, they could jump all the way out to tile 17 or 18 and place their marker there. The bad news for them would be is once you've placed a worker on a tile, you cannot go back to that tile or any which are previous to it in selection. So what am I placing these workers together? Well the different things that are available to outfit my ship are firstly guns. I'm going to use guns to be attacking forts out in the Caribbean and also galleons. Now the other things I want to go after are crew. I'm going to need those crew in order to attack cities and forts. There might be trade goods I can get where I can go to the peaceful ports and trade for the goods that are available. The other things I can do is I can upgrade. Now, everyone starts each of the three rounds in a frigate ship. Now, those frigates are no good for attacking the Spanish galleons out on the high seas, and the galleons give good points in this game. So there are a limited number of spaces available which are going to allow you to upgrade to a galleon. One of the things about this game is that there are different tiles depending upon the player count, three, four, or five. But no matter how many players there are, there are always 
one less space to become a galleon than there are players. So those are well sought after. There's also areas where you might go, for example, to get a pinnace. Now, a pinnace is a small ship, which is going to let you sail under the guns on forts. It's going to save you on guns if you've got one of those and allow you to attack forts, which will cost you crew only. There are also various characters you can claim. There's other things like you can take the Golden Hind. Now, the Golden Hind is a special ship. Everyone's going to get to stop on four different destinations during each voyage. But the Golden Hind lets you stop at a fifth destination and also lets you go first. As you're going along, you can choose where and when to stop. Also, everyone must stop on the last dock and you can take either a supply barrel, a gun or a crew. And then, in player order from who finished first, you're going to loan yourself out in the outbound docks. And that sets the player order for the next part of the voyage, which is where you're actually going to send your ships to different areas. So where are you sending your ships? Well, there are four main targets available to you. The first and most peaceful is there are three trade harbours along the way there. And you can sail there, and if you have a trade good, you're going to be able to swap your trade good for one of their trade goods. And that's the set collection part of the game. There are four different trade goods available. There are only three voyages you're going to make. So if you want to get a full set of the four different trade goods, you're going to have to stop there twice on one of your voyages. The other three are more military targets. Now, let's start with the first one, usually the easiest one. There are cities which are available. Now, cities are only defended by troops. There's a set number of troops. If you choose to, you can send your ship to stop there. Now, I'm going to go through how you send your ships in one second. I'm just going to finish doing the targets. The third type of target that is, is forts. Now, forts are similar to cities, but slightly better defended. And they are going to be defended by guns, which you can avoid if you've taken a pinnace. And also, they're going to be defended by troops. Now, there is a set number of troops defending each fort, but also they get a reinforcement. How does that work? There are four troop reinforcement tiles. Anyone who's taken the governor is going to be able to set these reinforcements and they decide where each of those strengths go. So they die. They know exactly how strong each of these forts are, but no one else does. Now, these troops, what they mean exactly is that's how many crew cubes you're going to have to pay in order to conquer that fort. Same thing with the city. If it's one troop there, you have to pay a crew cube in order to conquer that and score the points for it. The uh, last target is galleons. Now, I did say you're going to have to have upgraded to a galleon to take on a galleon. And each galleon, there are three different galleon tiles. And at the beginning of each round, they get mixed around. They are strength one, two, and three guns. And they get flipped over. And they're in three different areas of the board. So you're going to have an idea how strong the galleon is. Similar to the troops, they also get reinforcement tiles. They're extra sort of guns they're going to get. And the admiral, if there is an admiral, is going to know where those gun reinforcements go now each of those three targets the cities the forts and the galleons are going to give you a set number of points if you're able to go there and conquer them during your turn the other bonus is each of those three types of targets is going to have a particular gem next to them it's going to be a ruby a gold or a silver now these are going to be worth five four or three points respectively at the end of the game and whoever is first to successfully conquer that target in the round is going to take that gem and put it into a treasure chest which is next to them and it's going to be kind of hidden scoring at the end of the game now how are we going to resolve who goes where and who gets to go first to get these gems well everyone has got four wooden discs they're numbered one to four and now in player order they're going to get to lay out one of their discs number down at one of the targets now we don't reveal these and we don't get to see who's put where when yet Generally, there are two spaces at each target, so two people can take on each target. But that doesn't mean you're limited to two discs there. As many discs as you want can go there, but each player can only go to each target once. Once all of them have been placed, 
given that some people may have a fifth disc, which would be a ghost ship, which you can get from a tavern, which is kind of like just a fake one you can pull out to, to make people think you're going to a certain place, but you're not really. Or that golden hind I mentioned earlier. That is a fifth stopping marker and very powerful in the game if you manage to get it. Everyone's going to flip over their disc. Now, each location, they are going to be placed in number order. So we all had numbers one to four. So if I had a number two at an area, and Sean had a three, and Puri had a one, well, Puri would put his one on the top. My two would go next, and there's only two spaces at most targets. Sean's three would go off to one side, and it would be in waiting. Once they've all been flipped, what happens then is if the Golden Hind's in play, that goes before anyone else and you're going to attempt to conquer your target. And then we start resolving, and we go in player order from one to however many you have, going from numbers one down to four. So the first player's one would go, then the second player's one, then the third player's one, and so on. And then once we've gone through everyone, then all the number twos, then all the number threes, then all the number fours. And if you are able to and you choose to conquer a target, you conquer it. You score the number of points which is marked on the board for conquering that particular thing. You move your cube down if it's a type you haven't conquered yet that turn, and you take any gems if they are available. You can choose to go back home prematurely. You don't have to wait for all four of them. If you choose to do so, first person to go home, as long as they've conquered one thing that turn, is going to get a tiny bonus of two victory points. They're also, crucially and probably more importantly than just those two points, going to be first to place workers on the following turn. And that can be really important. At the end of each turn, all we do is we see how many different conquests you have conquered. So if I've only managed to conquer, say, a town, but not a fort and not a galleon, I'm just going to get one bonus point. If I've managed to conquer two different things of those, say a fort and a galleon but not a town, I get four bonus points. If I've managed to conquer all three on my turn, I get ten bonus points. And that can be really handy. So you're looking to be able to build a balanced ship that's able to take on all these different things. So from next turn, what we're going to do is... Those location tiles which were laid out, we're going to pick them up, we're going to shuffle them up, and we're going to lay them out in a different order. Then we're going to wipe our ships so we don't have anything left of the guns or of the crew or of the supplies. Now, I don't even told you what the supplies do. What the supplies do is they allow you, they tell you how far out you can sail into the Caribbean. The uh, map is divided into four different areas, and there's one galleon, one fort, and one city in each of the areas. The trading ports are in the first and second area, but... If you've got four barrels, you can go all the way into the fourth zone. If you've only got two barrels, you can only go in zones one and two. So your area there is limited in what you can attack. And also means that third and fourth zone, there's slightly less competition for places over there. So you hand all of those back, all the trade goods you didn't use. If you had a pinnace, any characters you had, they all get handed back in and you start again. The only thing you carry over from turn to turn is any trade commodity you are able to get on your turn. So then we use our worker placement again to go around to outfit our ship. We sail out again, we wipe, and then we do it a third time, wipe again. At the end of the game, we're going to score two sets of bonus points to go with all those points we've uh, scored already. And that's our commodities chart we go to. So those trade commodities, if you've managed to just trade for one, you're going to get one bonus point all the way up for. If you've managed to trade for four, you're going to get... 28 bonus points so it can be really handy there and the last thing we do is everyone reveals the gems in their treasure chests three for every silver you've got four for every gold five for every ruby add those to your score whoever scored the most points is the winner sean francis drake what are your thoughts first of all i do try tend to crowbar the way a game looks in, into this podcast because it's it's one of the things that's really important for me but with this one it kind of speaks for itself i think ronan that this may be the best looking game i've ever seen it is the most 
amazingly overproduced game I've ever played in my life. It is crazy. If they could make something bigger, brassier, more beautiful and nice to play with, they've done it. Yeah, everything about it is so beautifully and lovingly crafted. This one seems like a real labour of love. Every corner of that board is stunning. Every component that comes with it is stunning. And even down to the plastic insert that comes with the box, it's actually got a lid that is moulded to where everything goes in, in the box as well, just to make sure that you don't damage any of this beautiful game. Even the turn marker, Sean, the turn marker is a plastic ship and not a tiny one either. A decent sized plastic ship. Just to show if you're on turn one, two or three. All kinds of little touches like that just make it absolutely beautiful. When you go from a frigate to a galleon, it's not like you don't move some piece of cardboard somewhere. You change your whole ship from a small-ish plastic ship to a bigger plastic ship on the board. And you only use them to show you are in turn order. Oh, it's just beautiful. Judging by the fact that even Rodan's going on about the look of the game just shows you how amazing this game is. Now, on to the gameplay. Does the gameplay match up? We'll start in order. The first one, which I think we've come up with, is kind of like a progressive worker placement element to this game. Now, it's quite similar to a game called Egizia, which is a Egyptian-based game where you have exactly the same way of playing it, where you can never go backwards, you must always go forward. People can take massive steps to go to stuff they really want, but they're going to be missing out loads behind them, but they're also going to be blocking other people from getting that. It's not their invention, but it's a genius mechanic, in my opinion. Really feels like it's limiting your choice. You've got difficult choices. Imagine there were 16 different areas you can put your worker in, in this, and it was completely wide open. You'd be overwhelmed. You'd just be like, oh, there's so many different things I can choose here. In this case, it feels like there's only one or two different viable options to you. You go, I can either jump ahead there to take the three barrels, but I'm going to miss out on these crew, and there's only one other time I can get crew on. You know, there are decisions to be made at every step, but they're limited. What I really found, though, is in Agitia, you were limited in how far you could jump. You kind of had to stop at each of those building projects along the Nile in order to try and score them all because it was very important because stopping there was the equivalent of stopping on your journey in the second half of this. With this, the more I've played it and with people who have played it two or three times, people start to hone their strategies. In the beginning, you just try and get loads of everything. You have to realise you can only stop four, maybe five times on your journey. An efficient ship is going to be better than one that's just loaded up with loads of stuff. What people started to do was target the tiles they wanted to stop at, and they'd be happy to jump four tiles to get the tile they wanted, and then go again, and then jump again, and jump again, and use much less workers, but have a honed-in strategy to go, do you know what, if I just get that number of guns, but I take the Admiral... I'll know where my guns need to go to take the galleon. So I don't have to worry so much about getting spare ones because I'll have that information. So things like the Admiral became more important. What that did then is by people honing a certain strategy, it actually meant that going last became better because it was opening up more areas of the board. People weren't just slowly hoovering all the good stuff up as they went along. They were leaping over good stuff to get the stuff they wanted to go first in turn order. It actually became quite interesting. And freer than the Egyptian model of this sort of progressive worker placement. I really like it. I really like the way it's developed during plays. Exactly the point I was making is this simple little mechanic where you have to go forward and you can't go back and you place your worker. It's just so thought-provoking and you're coming up with different strategies just for something that simple. I think it's really great. 
The way that Francis Drake actually does it, the tiles are actually randomised every turn, so it's always that little bit different. Do you really need the Galleon? Oh, there's so much to think about. I love this aspect of the game. I do like the second half of the game, but this is the bit that make, makes it tick for me. Yeah, and depend upon your player count, they have included a whole set of tiles for whether you've got three, four, or five players. Actually makes a big gameplay difference because... With five players, there's a lot more supplies because there's more ships going to different areas. In three players, if all four areas of the board were easy to get to, everyone would be spread out. And that second half really wouldn't be very interesting because there wouldn't be much competition for areas because that placement of where you're stopping does become interesting with five players. But what they've done with three players is they've made barrels much, much harder to get. So they've actually very much limited where you can get to. So that knife fight for barrels is important. And then the knife fight for who gets to stop where, the gems become much more difficult to get. Really great. They're not only if they overproduced it in terms of aesthetics, that you've got a different set of tiles for different numbers of players, but it actually makes a difference to the gameplay and keeps the game interesting for different player counts. On to the second half, if you like, of the actual gameplay of this game, where you're going out and you're collecting resources and you're attacking galleons and towns. This could have been just a simple go out, get your stuff, maybe have a bit of interaction on the way. But what they've done is they've brought in the unknown, which really shakes this side of the game up. Ways you don't know how many people are defending a town. You don't know how many guns are on each galleon. You don't know where people are actually going because everything's done in a secretive way where they're placing down these numbers. I think that's what makes this actually almost as good as the first half of the game. Oh, if you're playing with five players who know the game a little bit, this is where it becomes cutthroat. Forget about the placements, because if someone nicks barrels a certain place, usually you can kind of work out or go, do you know what, all right, it doesn't look like I'm going to get four barrels. I can adjust on the fly here. Once you kind of get to know the game a bit, and you can still work out your strategy. Down here, when you're pointing out where you're sailing, that's where it gets real. There's a tavern on in Plymouth, and when you go there, you can get crew, or if you roll barrel, you can get a ghost ship. But actually, once someone gets a ghost ship, depending upon who they are, it can become vital because it's an extra ship to play. So they now have five ships to place, but one's a ghost ship, which means it's going to come off the board. It has no effect once you flip them all over. But if they combine that with, like I say, maybe the Admiral or the Governor, they can use that to great effect. And turn order becomes so important. For those four trade goods, there's only one indigo available each turn. So... More than three players, not everyone is going to be able to get all four Traegers. And like I said, that's nearly 30 points. Who's going? Who's got the Golden Hind? Are they going for the Indigo? Does that mean my one is useless? So should I use my one to chase that Ruby over there? But hold on a second, the Admiral's gone after that one. They, oh. And this is where the headaches come in. And this is where the, the dirty looks. And oh, we had a real funny game where one of the guys, he's he was the Admiral. And he's put his ships in certain places. So me and another guy full on have followed what he's done and read what he's done. And he's only going to misread the map and put them in the wrong place and screwed us completely over by accident. I think there was actually headbutting of walls going on at that stage. Is there any negatives on this game? For me, I think with three players, I think they can get to the stage where only one person can get to that fourth area in the Caribbean seas and they've got just the free reign of all the areas out there. Also, I think in the three-player game, it's quite important to collect all of those resources and get that, that big bonus for all the resources. Ronan, what do you think? In terms of collecting resources, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where I think a lot of aspects of the game is if it makes sense to go after trade goods, 
go after them. If it becomes too competitive or you're giving up too much to do it, don't. You have to kind of adjust a little bit and go, well, that's okay. Do you know what? I'm not going to get them, but I'm going to make sure I'm going to get that 10 bonus every time and I'm going to get two rubies every turn. And do you know what? If you get two rubies every turn, that's the same bonus as getting those trade goods. And getting those trade goods takes away one of your stops on the way. So you have one without having any trade goods whatsoever, but with more players, which I think it's slightly easier to do. So you're right. I think the three-player game, it feels in some ways like it could be looser, but actually you have almost more competent in playing that version of it. In terms of a negative for me, what I will say is the game doesn't do anything new. You've not heard anything revolutionary here from us. It's a worker placement. Yes, it is a progressive worker placement. That's slightly different than most worker placements. There's not 812 resources. They don't all interact in different ways. It's go out, score points for, for handing your cubes back in, but in a very fancy, themed, enjoyable way. Sean, I guess, final thoughts on Francis Drake? For me, uh, absolutely stunning game. And although the rules do kind of take some time to explain it all makes sense and i think it's quite an intuitive game there's not that much to it it's almost like two games that connect into one for me and i do i really enjoy both sides of this game and i kept talking them as two different sides to the same game because that's the way i feel about the game again it's another game that you actually own ronan and i am 99.9 percent going to own myself that's just because it's so pretty though admit it Oh, yeah, I could quite happily never play that game and just sit and watch it. For me, it doesn't do anything new, but what it does do, it does very competently. It's not the game of the year. It's not going to turn the world upside down. It's not my favourite game of all time, but it's a game I am going to be happy to get out and play because it's enjoyable. It makes sense. It taxes the brain. It is nicely interactive, particularly that second half. But in fact, all of it is, is interactive. It's for... I would say the ideal group is a social group of people who enjoy Euros. So they're happy to sit down for two, two and a half hours and plan things out and score points, but they want to have a chat and they want to enjoy the game and not take it too seriously. It's not complex enough for your real deep gamers. Social Euro players, grab a hold of Francis Drake. Wow! When you open that box the first time and enjoy what is a very well made, really competent, very enjoyable game to play. Francis Drake. Well, thank you very much for listening to our Picking Over the Bones episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And catch us next time for a Christmas edition of The Game Pit with some special guests thrown in. Again, you can catch all of our episodes on 2d6.org along with a host of other written audio and video gaming goodness you can find a wide variety of all kinds of gaming podcasts at the dicetowernetwork.com if you want to get in touch with us we're on facebook you can also email us at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com and feel free to follow us on twitter at gamepitpodcast theme by e Aaron.